whether it's with your employees, whether it's with your boss, whether it's with your clients, or your customers, that trust will go much further than that singular moment where you provide that context, right? You're, you're learning to know one another and trust each other. It'll come back to you. There's reciprocity in that. They will afford you the same level of empathy and transparency. And I can only believe that that helps. Hello and welcome to Taking the Lead a podcast featuring conversations with the most accomplished, admired, and amazing female revenue leaders throughout B2B tech. Taking the Lead is hosted by Christina Brady, a sales leader, lifelong learner, and president of Sales Assembly. This show is brought to you by Sales Assembly, the industry's first and only scale-as-a-service platform that helps high-growth tech companies scale better, scale faster, and scale smarter. Visit salesassembly.com to learn more. And now let's jump into the conversation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Taking the Lead. I am Christina Brady. I am the Chief Strategy Officer of Sales Assembly. And this episode is brought to you by our three incredible sponsors, Vidyard, Blueboard, and Motion. Vidyard is the video platform that is built for business. You can find them at vidyard.com. Essentially, anybody on your revenue team can use Vidyard to record videos that are going to grab your customers and prospects' attention better than an email that doesn't include video, especially right now where we are all working remote, office, coffee shop, anywhere. It's not just your plain old video hosting platform. You can create personalized video experiences. You can track video performance analytics and even integrate your video data into your CRM for follow-up. If you are not familiar with Vidyard or you are not using video integration in your sales and customer emails, now is the time. Also, Blueboard, I am really excited to be talking about them, especially once again right now with what we are all going through in the world. They are the world's leading experiential sales recognition platform that offers top reps their choice of hand-curated experiences. We're talking about skydiving, courtside tickets, Michelin star dining, even five-star spa escapes. There is something for everybody. So if you want to give somebody on your team a reward, once they receive that reward, they're paired with a dedicated Blueboard concierge who's going to handle all of the logistics, the itinerary, yes, even the payments. Your reps don't even have to pull out their credit cards or cash. All they have to do is show up and enjoy. And then afterwards, what's beneficial for you as a leader is Blueboard captures the feedback, photos, and memories. So you have full transparency around your incentive program's impact and even some awesome stories to share. So use Blueboard to create a culture of appreciation and be just one step closer to the employee retention that you need to scale your business. Check them out at podcast.blueboard.com and you can even get a free demo. And lastly, we could not produce this podcast and the show without our incredible partnership with the team at Motion. Motion is a podcasting service for marketing teams in the B2B tech SaaS space. They launch this podcast and others like this thousands. They create the audio, video, and written content out of every episode. So if you are looking to launch your own show or lean into marketing, you got to check out Motion to do it. And you can find them at motionagency.io. With that, I am very excited to introduce my incredible guest for today, Angela Earl. Angela, hello. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Christine. I'm excited to be here. I am 
just thrilled to be talking to you, especially there's so much that we're going to dive into. But when I look a little bit at kind of your history and what got you in the room today, you've been in marketing operations. You were the president of one of your own marketing companies. You've been a chief revenue officer. You're a founder and host of your own podcast that you continue to have. And now your day to day, just the thing you do during the day, in addition to all of this, is you are the VP of global marketing at RFPIO. Talk to us just a little bit about you and how you got where you are. What an incredible journey. Yeah, it has been a fun journey and continues to be every day. I love to learn. So the variety and my background sort of shows really leans into that. At the core, I'm a marketer. In life, I aim to leave everything better than I find it. So that translates into leading my my people and my teams in ways that are developing them as humans and us as marketers and the company as a whole. That's an incredible thing to share. I often say too that whenever somebody is in my org and either directly reporting to me or a dotted line, it's my goal is to make you better than me. Like I should be raising people professionally that I would report to one day. So I just love the idea of making something better once you've touched it. Talk to us a little bit about kind of the journey of going from one company to the next. How did you think through those decisions? And I imagine it encompassed a large part of your life, it seems like to achieve what you've achieved and do so many multiple things. This concept of work-life balance, a little bit of what we're talking about today, how this is going to be the the stereotypical question, how do you balance it all? Yeah. You know, in a lot of ways, I'm a planner. So I'm always thinking out into the future, some far off time, right? Five years, 10 years, 20 years. I'm one of those people. And at the same time, all of my moves have happened really organically and unplanned, right? They sort of were serendipitous for just the situation I was in. I don't know that that leans into the work-life balance or mantra of work-life integration necessarily, but we nurture relationships. We, you're pressing into what matters most to you and you're really following what brings you joy. I think it just kind of evolves. Yeah, definitely. Well, and you do more than one thing even right now. And I think a lot of times people struggle with this idea of, do I focus solely on my career and the job that I'm doing now? Or do I spend time to also live in my passion? Or do I spend time to network for the next role? Or do I take the time to interview? And so to me, that's kind of where the idea of balance comes from, where one move into the next requires you doing more than what you normally have to do. And so let's dive into this idea of just kind of balance and work-life balance. And to you, I always say this feels really, really buzzy to me because people ask me all the time, how do you balance it all? And part of what I say is, yeah, I'm like a hot mess. I, I really don't. And so <laughs> like, I'm terrible at it. So in your opinion, just diving a little bit into this idea of personal and professional balance, what are some of your high level thoughts there? Yeah. I mean, I think balance at its core is unachievable. So when you talk about being a hot mess, I think anybody trying to balance any amount of things is going to feel that way. I've also found in my own experience and in coaching and mentoring a whole bunch of of people that it comes with it a lot of guilt because Mm. whether you're giving time to work and you're guilty, you're not at home or you're giving time to home and you're not at work or you're volunteering and now you're giving time that you feel guilty about even making. I think that guilt and that compartmentalization really stem from the fact that work-life balance isn't achievable. And it's not something we should be striving for. 
but rather we should be looking to integrate. They're all life. It's all our life, right? And it's all of us as a person. I am part marketer. I am also wife and, and Nona and Zia, and I'm all of these roles in different parts of my life, but it's all my life. And if I can give myself wholly and really strive to integrate all of those things so I'm giving all of me to all of them, the guilt melts away, right? And I can just be present and be joyful in, in each of those areas. I even think that the choice to be present and accept that you can be and should be is big because I want to dive into this idea of guilt that you talked about, where oftentimes we're having to make a decision of how we spend our time, right? It's a non-renewable resource. And the idea of guilt of if I spend it here versus spending it here in the guilt, how do you make the right decision in terms of where to spend your time without letting somebody down? Like if I spend my time on my personal passion during the day, am I being a bad employee? And if I let my kids or my relationships fall to the wayside, am I being a bad individual? You know, so it's like, like, how do you balance the idea of guilt and how do you make the right decision personally and professionally? Yeah, I mean, I can speak to my own experience here. I think a lot of it is really in, dependent on what's going on in your life. I think we're having this conversation in part because of the chapter of I wrote in Significant Women, Leaders Reveal Who Ma What Matters Most. And in my chapter, I talk about a season of life where I was taking care of my grandmother who had dementia. She lived with us. And there's no better situation to teach you about being present and being in the moment than when you're faced with that level of mortality and just time being finite and, and very limited. And at the same time, it doesn't have to be to that extreme, right? You can, if you're sitting at dinner, don't be on your phone, right? Really simple things that we say, but don't be scrolling through your inbox or your Slack stream when your child is there to hug you and say goodbye, you know, to go off to school, like be present, be in the moment and, and let the day kind of unfold. You know, if somebody has a soccer game at two in the afternoon, please be there. There's only, you know, a finite, my daughter's 25. I want those soccer games back. Right. So go to them. Right. And at the same time, if your boss says, Hey, can you jump on a call at 8 PM? It's not going to take away from home life be there, be accessible, right? And and like a dance, right? I think they, they really become very fluid with practice. I mean, it's such a good reminder, especially to hear from somebody at your level who's achieved what you've achieved, especially professionally, that I think goes back to that idea of guilt. If I take off in the middle of the day, even to do something for my child or to care for a loved one, that somehow it's not okay, or I have to earn that time back. I have to make up for it somehow. And thinking about the chapter that you wrote in the book, what a raw and absolutely incredible story. And in your own experience, talk to us a little bit about how you got through that of having to deal with something so emotionally heavy. Were you still working during the time and trying to do things outside of just being a caregiver, which is 27, seven <laughs> hour yeah. a day job? Yeah, I mean, so I, I was ironically the same week that my grandmother moved in with us full time, I decided to start my own agency because life. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, why not? <laughs> uh, go big or go home. They were not simultaneous decisions. One followed the other quite unexpectedly. And we just decided to lean in, to be honest. And I think the other thing aside from guilt that we hold on to that keeps us is fear. And we're afraid of failing. We're afraid of what could happen if we're somewhere we, you know, and we're not somewhere else. And, you know, if there can be a silver lining of those moments, everything needed to be decided very quickly. I didn't have the luxury of overthinking it that I do nowadays. 
And so with Nana, it was like, well, I'm not going to put her on the corner. Right? <laughs> so move on in. We'll figure it out. Right. And, and you just sort of go. And I'd already made the decision to launch Hatsama. So here we go. Right. And I am very fortunate that I have an amazing support system in my mentors and my husband and my family. My kids are grown, as I said. And so I just said, you know, hold on. Here we go, everybody. And and they all we just rolled with it. I think on top of the physical toll that something like that takes, to me, it's the emotional toll that makes it so much harder. I've never been more exhausted in my life than when I'm exhausted emotionally. And I feel like I have nothing left to give. And I have to imagine starting up your own company and then caring for a loved one. And especially with something like dementia, like my gosh, it is a horrific thing to watch somebody that you love go through. I had to imagine there were days where you really felt like you just either couldn't work or couldn't care and you had to. And how did you get yourself out of bed those days or did you? I always got out of bed because if I didn't, she was going to get out of bed. <laughs> that was where she got out with me. By force, by force. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that wasn't on the table as far as an option. You just sort of learn to live in the moment in a way that you can't describe to someone who hasn't had to do that, to be honest. And the biggest lesson of that time is I learned to be vulnerable in a way I had never experienced. I'm a type A personality. I was raised in a time and of a generation that you, you know, you made it work. You showed up, you put on a good face and you buttoned up your clothes and put on your big girl pants and you just did it, right? You sort of just bared through it and it wasn't that I was inauthentic at work ever. I don't feel like I was fake, but I wasn't ripped open vulnerable, right? I wasn't, it was never a moment where I was going to tell a client like, Hey, I got to go. My Nana needs me in the other room. That was not my MO. And I had to get really vulnerable, right? I had clients that were depending on me and a Nana that was depending on me. And I would have to say, Hey, the caregiver can't do what she's doing right now without me. Can we start this call in 10 minutes? I'll be right back. Right. Or can we wrap it up and I'll send you a recap via email. And so work had to get flexible, right, in a way that it hadn't. I had to get vulnerable and then I had to build a support system around me with caregivers and things that did allow me some semblance of structure. Because my clients, they had real deadlines and real deliverables that they were counting on us for. I wanted to ask about that, too, because while you're going through this, what level of transparency do you feel like is the right level? It sounds like at least some of your coworkers or people that you were working with or some of your clients or customers potentially knew what you were going through, but do you feel like that's the right thing? If you find yourself working and also having to deal with something very, very emotional at home, maybe it's working, maybe it's caring for a loved one, maybe it's infertility, maybe you just had a baby, maybe you're dealing with some mental issues after going through what we've all been through, whatever you're dealing with, how much of that do you think should be transparent? Does it depend on the role that you're in? I don't know that it depends on the role. It may. I haven't considered that. There's definitely an overshare, right? You don't want to hijack a client meeting and, and talk for 30 minutes about, I don't know, all the things that go into caring for somebody with dementia. That's not all pretty. At the same time, I think if we expose what we're going through, at least at a high level, we allow people to empathize, to people to understand rather than we all have perceptions, right? We only know from the angle we sit. And so where it might look like, oh, she's flaky. If people understand that you're dealing with something, right? 
I mean, even in, in recording this podcast, right, we had to reschedule. I unfortunately was in a bit of a fender bender. And so I exposed that. And I said, hey, this happened. Can we move it? And because of you understood the circumstance, you were very kind and said, yeah, no problem. If I had just said, hey, can we move this without any information, you're kind of left to fill in the gaps on your own and we're human, right? We're going to fill it in with hopefully assuming the best. But if we don't have anything to lean on in background, we might not be assuming the best. And then we can make assumptions that can lead to deteriorating relationships. What an incredible point. You know what that makes me think of is so often sales leaders will move their teams one-on-ones and they'll cancel them and they look at them as being expendable. And one thing that I always caution my leaders against and I caution everyone against is to that point, giving people the context so they don't fill it in. Because when you cancel on somebody, especially if you're their boss and you have so much control over their livelihood and their career and you cancel on them for something like a one-on-one, the first thing they think is, the time with me isn't important as whatever else you're doing. Exactly. So that message of being open and transparent, you never know what people are going to fill the gap with. And it's usually I'm lesser. I'm not important. You didn't prioritize me. And the the impact on the trust and on relationships certainly can't be talked about enough, the result yeah. of that. Well, and it does build trust. I mean, that's just it. Whether it's with your employees, whether it's with your boss, whether it's with your clients, or your customers, that trust will go much further than that singular moment where you provide that context, right? You're learning to know one another and trust each other. It'll come back to you. There's reciprocity in that. They will afford you the same level of empathy and transparency. And I can only believe that that helps. Well, and I think one thing that you and I were going through as we were even just prepping to record is the idea of how this pandemic has impacted certainly product and go-to-market strategy. But the way people interact with each other is forever different now. And do you feel like this experience has helped or hurt our ability to treat each other like humans? I think it's absolutely helped. And my fingers and legs and ankles and hairs are all crossed that it doesn't go away. I love the fact that everybody was forced into far more extreme integration than I talk about in my chapter. Just I did not I did not foresee this coming, nor is this what I was describing. But you know, we were forced to see each other's dogs and children. You know, this morning on a call, my niece, who's two, is climbing all over me in the middle of one of my one-on-ones. And we're seeing each other's homes, right? We became human as a part of this pandemic in more ways than one. We allowed that humanity into the way that we go to market, the way that we sell, right? We stopped for at least a time cold calls even stopped. We stopped picking up the phone and calling people who were not expecting or wanting to hear from us. We just said, you know what, I'm going to respect that there's life going on and I'm going to let it happen. Business is picking up. The momentum is picking up. We see, and I just hope we don't return to our old bad habits, right? That we leave that humanity in there. And we remember that at the end of the day, we are people working with selling to marketing to people. Do you think it was the separation that caused that? Like, do you think it was the separation that caused it? The fact that we have to work at home and see that? Was it not physically being in the office? Because if it is, then a return to the office could very easily mean this culture goes away. We stop seeing it. Like, how do you think that people, when we start to go back to a new normal, can continue this culture of remembering that we're human beings and everything that goes along with that? I do think returning to the office is going to make force us to have to be intentional about it. 
it's going to make it a little harder. On the drive to the office, what do we do? We put on special clothes. We get in our car. We change our location, <laughs> right? On the walk into the office, who isn't straightening their hair and, you know, making sure, looking in the mirror as they walk by or the reflection at a door. And then we walk in and we are our work persona, right? There's a physical transformation, whether we're conscious of it or not, that happens. And then we're at work, right? And then how many times when you're on your way to happy hour, do you rip your ponytail out, shake out your hair, take off your blazer, right? And exhale, right? And so it's like, how do we maintain that when you, we're going to have to transition, we're going to go back to the office at some point, right? So it's learning to be our authentic selves throughout the entire part of our day before, during, and after the office. Do you feel like the example for that should be set by leaders and leaderships? Like, should companies get together and actually talk about, because what we're talking about here is really a culture change, right? It's the idea of, I mean, you know, right now you and I are in this call and we are two professionals talking to each other in a fun capacity because we're, you know, we're recording a show. We're in a professional capacity. And we're fun. And we're fun people, right? Like we're super fun. (laughs) And, you know, I'm sitting here without any makeup on. I'm wearing like a workout shirt. You know, you actually look lovely. But it's just like, I've realized too that this idea of putting on that face of code switching, of stepping into now my professional self, for me, it's gotten very, very blurred. And I have to wonder, When they talk about leaders setting examples for their people, what is the example that every leader should set? How do we go back to the office and determine physically what does that look like? Emotionally, what does that look like? How do you think that we start to approach thinking through that? I don't think it happens unless the tone at the top changes, right? So unless we demonstrate what that looks like, it's not going to expand into the rest of our organizations. It's not safe unless we are modeling it right? Going back to that trust we talked about, we get to decide as leaders, what's trusted and acceptable. And, you know, whether we or not, right, if we're ignoring it, we're setting an example. And if we're not ignoring it, we're setting an example. That's just the nature of what it is we do. And so I think it's really important in leadership that we say, how are we going to model what we want? And what do we want? I think it starts by saying, what do we want? right? I think we can probably all agree that there's some level of professional we need in the office, right? Does it matter if people show up in flip-flops? I don't know. That's probably company to company. Are shorts acceptable? I'm not sure. My husband works at Nike. He wears shorts, right? He sometimes walks out of the house and I'm like, you're going to work? (laughs) (laughs) Or are you going to a basketball game? (laughs) And that was pre-pandemic. Now, now I'm in yoga pants all the time, right? Lululemon gets more of my dollars than I'll admit. Yeah. I think we have to first decide what do we want the office culture to be like, and then from there make very intentional decisions to model authenticity. And, you know, I think we should prioritize being human and being authentic within a professional framework. Yeah, it's interesting. So my husband works for the White Sox. And when they all had to go back to the office, they mandated everybody's back to the office. And I remember the first day that he had to go back, the, the entire pen, I mean, like we're in what you see in front of you now, right? Like we're in like easy clothes, we have a toddler. So we were just athleisure, and, athleisure <laughs> you know, like aggressive athleisure daily for 18 months. And he put on khakis and then a polo shirt. And I was like, are you dressing up for work? And he's like, I have to. And I'm like, you do still? Like, it was just this wild thought of like, oh my gosh. And then the first Friday he was back, he put on jeans and I was like, you're wearing jeans to work. He's like, what's casual Friday? And I just laughed because it was like these ideas of just like, 
okay, we're going to go back to the office and try again to be like, oh, it's casual Friday. In my mind, I'm like, should we bother? Why are we bothering with this? It was just kind of this this wild thing of witnessing him trying to be like, no, I, I'm a professional in, in the office again. It was very strange. Yes, I've had to do that a couple of times myself. I'm not used to wearing real pants anymore. <laughs> right, right. You put on jeans and you're like, how did I do this for so long? It's crazy. I put on heels for the first time the other day and my feet were, I think, actually screaming, like they were actually screaming at me. But it is kind of that concept. And we jest about things like dress code and whatnot. But what it really is, is it is about, to your point, this idea of I need to be my professional self in order to produce revenue and excel to be able to live my life, right? If you're one of those people that says I work to live, what do I have to do in order to do that properly? And then when I'm not working, then I'm the real me. But can you be the real you in both places? And are you supporting your people to feel like they can, whether that's dress code or behavior or some other cultural aspect? I think companies need to start thinking through that and what it's going to look like. Yeah. I mean, the emotion follows the aesthetic, right? So, I mean, if you're putting on special clothes or special makeup or special hairdos or whatever, you're putting on more than that. There's a lot unspoken that goes with those sort of ornamental things. I know I think it's why ping pong and those fun, you know, we tease the Silicon Valley for creating this thing, but the, what it did was it allowed people to be real. Even if it was just with a paddle in, the, in a ball, we were laughing and we were having fun and we were more ourselves and it felt good to be real with each other. You know, and I think we can be real in conference rooms. We can be real at the board tables. And the more we are, the more we can focus on actually getting the work done. So, yeah. When you think about the changes that have been made and allowing people to show how human we've been this entire time, get a glimpse into our real lives, there's no way that that doesn't form intense connection. And on the flip side of that, there have been all of these improvements and creativity and necessary innovation on the product side. And you think about the idea of these two things being put together. What do you think the future looks like? Even if you think about B2B SaaS, do you feel like we're in a better position now to navigate the future than we were even pre-pandemic? Has Ultimately, is there something good that could come out of all this? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a ton of good that can come out, out of it if we lean into a new future, right? The words return to normal and a new normal kind of scare me a little bit because I feel yeah. like it's putting those khaki pants back on and then jeans because the casual Friday, what, right? It's that same <laughs> right. thing that the digital transformation has taken over. We've seen adoption of, of SaaS solutions. We've seen a push for integrations. I mean, if you look at the partnerships that are being formed between tech companies, I don't remember that level of collaboration happening company to company. We were sharks, right? <laughs> and we were going right. after the same prey. And now we're like, hey, you want to link arms and do a webcast together, right? Let's co-sponsor this event. And we see that humanity has transformed into the way we are working and it has produced better results. I mean, I sit here and talk about wearing yoga pants and flip-flops. RFPIO has grown faster in the last 18 months than the 18 months that preceded that. And we've been on a growth trajectory for five years, right? We just, I mean, not to accolade, but to point to it, we were the best ranked you know, company in Oregon on the Inc. 5000 recently. So big stuff, we're proving that results follow that human approach. And so I think if we lean into the digital transformation and we keep it going and we maintain the humanity and the realist, authentic selves, the two have to produce better results. 
Well, there's a good case study there when you mention RFPIO and the success. I think a lot of companies would love to embody that and have the same level of success. So what do you attribute that to? Like, why have the last 18 months for your company been so meaningfully different in a great way than I think so many others who would say this has been one of the hardest times in their company? They're laying people off. They're changing their product. They're going under. What do you think has been the key for RFPIO? One of the biggest shifts we made is really asking ourselves, what do our customers and prospects need to experience with every touch we make, right? So RFPIO has been a customer-led company for a long time. We tout that we've implemented 90% of our customer suggestions on our product. We are a customer-focused or centric or whatever you know term you want to put on it, organization, but that didn't translate wholly into marketing. We had a lot of case studies. We had a lot of customer reviews. We had a lot of happy customers, but our messaging now starts with, what do we want customers to feel? Literally, we start with emotion. Right? We build onto that user stories that say, what's this message mean for this audience? And we frame it like a user story the way you would in building software. And so we're considering the customer in every moment that marketing is creating. And I think by putting ourselves aside, we're not leading with features. We're not leading with, hey, look at us and look at this coolness that you know we're building over here. We're leading with you. And what do you need and what do you want and what are we going to help you achieve? And how do we want you to experience RFPIO? Was that a change that was made because of shutdowns and the pandemic? Because it feels like a small thing, but that's actually, that's kind of a big paradigm shift. A great Yeah, one. I don't have a pre- pandemic story as the leader of RFPIO. I started about six weeks before we all went home. Um, so, I mean, yes, I have a sort of a different belief on marketing, right? We don't gate content. I, I'm sort of, I like to probably do things that are less common and popular. So it's definitely in the plan, but I think we leaned into it more than we ever intended or faster, similar to the digital transformation acceleration we've all experienced. We adopted that framework much faster than I probably would have pushed my team because right away, our customers were experiencing the pandemic alongside us. They were at home dealing with children that were in school, family members that were potentially sick, groceries that were sitting on the porch and we were wiping down with Lysol wipes. Like when we tell our grandkids these stories, they're going to think we were lunatics. (laughs) You did what with the milk? (laughs) But yeah, no, I remember one scene, my husband, when we were all dealing with like toilet paper shortages, he went to Costco right when 45 minutes before they opened, stood in this line with like three masks on his face. He brought home so much food, like the zombie apocalypse was about to happen, right? And I remember looking at him and going, what do you want me to do with all this? We don't have room for this. And we literally had to start giving away food to friends and family because we legit could not fit it in our freezer. (laughs) So aside from the crazy sides of what was going on in life, I think we stopped and we said, all right, stop everything which when can you afford to do that in business, right? So we seized the moment, not to be super cheesy, but we did. And we said, okay, stop everything. Let's look at everything we're doing and let's not be tone deaf, right? I'm not gonna send out drip emails to people that are dealing with real crisis. Mm -hmm. And I think it forced us to say, what do we really wanna say to these people? And what can we say that would be really helpful? And it flipped everything for us. It went, oh, 
they're remote for the first time ever, right? They're sitting at a dining room table, maybe at a basement, maybe in a closet. I have friends that literally transformed their walk-in closets because they had no other space to work. And so if you know that's what your prospect is dealing with, what can I say to you that's gonna make meaningful difference, right? And we began to do it slowly but surely, and it just became a part of how we go to market. And now I'm very proud to say it's it's just the way that we do it. Uh, that's incredible. And I think not only for the way to treat your customers by framing your company and your business around how do we want our customers to feel, but also, if you're looking to think about how to actually build culture, right, put something on your job descriptions that is meaningful, it's not work-life balance is important to us because to the point of this entire conversation, that's almost meaningless and it's different for everybody. And work-life balance assumes that it's something that you can nail and it's this unachievable thing that we all aim for in our lives. But if you think about how do we want our employees to feel? working here? What do we want our employees to feel? We want our employees to feel like they can openly talk about if they're parents, they can openly talk about if they're caregivers, they can openly talk about if they are making any kind of transition in their gender or their mindset or in their lives. They can openly talk about if they're getting married, they can openly talk about when they're having a great day or when they're having a bad day. It's this idea of how do I want my employees to feel and identify that feeling and it becomes a part of the company culture. And to me, that's what we've learned. When it translates into work too. Yeah. Right? Like it translates into, I'm really overwhelmed by this project. It translates into, I'm going to miss this deadline before they do. It translates into like, I need more information to do this right. Like the, that vulnerability translates into people being more open about the work, which allows the work to be more successful in turn. Right? You can help. I always tell my team, if, if I know about something, I can help. If you keep it to yourself, you're on your own. Right. And so if they trust that they can say to you, you know what, I'm not having a good day. And when my team comes to me and they say, I've got a migraine or I've got, I'm really overwhelmed. Even it doesn't have to be a migraine. I'm really overwhelmed. I will often say to them, please shut your computer off and take the rest of the day because it's better for me and them and the company that when they need that rest, that they take it and they're going to come back able to focus, the work I'm going to get from them is going to be 100% better once they're restored. But if I lean in and I go, well, just do this one thing, right? I'm going to get bad work out of them. I'm probably going to be frustrated with what got done. They're going to feel worse. And you're not creating a culture that actually allows us to be who we are. Right? That's huge. And you've done something to make it feel safe for people to say that. Because I think the reason a lot of people don't is it's not safe for me at my company to talk about what I'm going through or to say, I need a mental break. I need a day off, not because I'm sick, because my kids need to go somewhere, but because I am overwhelmed and I am drowning mentally and emotionally and I need a day for me time. That's really scary because the reality is a lot of companies don't look on that favorably and they will give you a, a demerit for something like that. So it sounds like you've created the culture where that's celebrated because what you're ultimately celebrating is motivated, strong work ethic and ability to identify when you can't put that forth, go do what you have to do to get yourself in a position where you can. Not everybody does that. In fact, I would say most probably don't. I mean, it starts with doing it myself. Right. And I think that's what creates that environment as leaders going back to what we talked about earlier. I'm that way with my team. 
right? That is self-accountability, right? That means I have to be that way with me. In order to be that way to them, I have to actually be willing to say, I can't do this today. I need a break. And if I can say that to me, that's the hardest part is saying that to myself. Remember, I'm a type A personality, super yeah. competitive, right? It's really hard, even with this much practice for me to be like, you know what? No, I need today. I'm going to need the rest of the afternoon and I'll try again tomorrow. And that might mean I let some people down. It might mean that I have to reschedule some things, but it's better for everybody that I go do that. And then it's being vulnerable and transparent with my team to not just fade into the shrub like Homer Simpson in that gif, right? But to actually, <laughs> yeah, sort of slink away, but to actually say, you know what, guys, I'm off today and I know it wasn't planned and I'm sorry for any inconvenience it causes, but I'm going to be offline for a few hours. I'm going to go take a walk, you know, see if I can get myself the rest I need. And then I go away. I don't check Slack. They don't see my green dot, right? I'm not replying to emails. I'm really away. And now they're going to know that that's okay. And if I do that a couple of times, they're going to be brave enough to, to try it out themselves. What my life was changed. The very first leader that I ever had who made me realize this is okay. Her name was Stephanie Jenkins. She was my VP back at Glassdoor. She's now the CRO of Flowhub. And she was the first leader I ever had where I had a rep when I was a frontline leader who was just, I knew was having a really, really rough time. And she showed up for work that day. She was a little bit disheveled. I could just tell that she was emotional. And I went to Stephanie and I was like, not really sure what to do. And she's like, well, why don't you offer to buy her lunch? Go let her take a little bit of time on her own and decide if she needs to go home for the day or stay here. But like, why don't you just go support her in whatever she needs? And I was like, I can do that. I can like have her go and like leave the office. And she looked at me like I was nuts. And she's like, yeah. And I was like, what? I mean, and this is like a decade into, you know, my career where for the first time somebody was like, well, why don't we care for her a little bit? Let's get her a meal and let's give her the option to go home and take a day. And I'm like, I can do that. Like now I think about that story and it makes me laugh because I'm like, it's so silly that I was so shocked that I was like, I can let her leave. <laughs> but people are dealing with that yeah. reality every day, right? Which is funny because if somebody had suggested you do that for a neighbor yeah. or a friend or a family member, no big deal. It would have almost been intuitive, right? But we've put these constructs on what work is like. And it's so different from life that no wonder we're struggling with yeah. guilt and fear of being a fake self. Who could be their real self in that environment, right? You have to turn off all of your emotions. Yeah, right? Don't bring it to work, so, right? Leave your personal life at home and, and don't bring it to work. And you're like, well, that's complicated. So this has been an absolutely incredible conversation. I can't believe how quickly the time has flown, which just goes to show that this is meaningful stuff. But we are at the point where it is time for our rapid reveal. It is five questions that are 60 seconds or less to answer. Are you down for this? <laughs> I love it. I love Ready it. For okay. So number one, we're going to start light. <laughs> we're going to ease into it. What's your favorite hobby? Okay. My favorite hobby, it's got to be working in my garden. I sound like an 85-year-old woman when I say that, but I am. <laughs> no, it's beautiful. I love it. <laughs> I love cut flowers, always have. And I, I sort of dreamed as a little girl of having my own cutting garden. And so when we bought this house, I very intentionally planted one. And from spring to fall, I absolutely love going out there and tending to it. I love that. I have always wanted a garden. And funny enough, I now finally at my house have a deck 
And so last year I planted all these pretty flowers and they were amazing. And then COVID hit and the entire thing just turned into like a garden of death. And then winter time came and it was all gone. And then spring came again and my son likes to go outside and just like pour water in the pots. And now all these weeds grew, but now he calls them his weeds. Aww. So now my child now has a garden of weeds on my deck that I can't well, I'll tell down. you what my botany like, teacher told weeds. me once. A weed is only something <laughs> planted where it's not wanted. So if your son wants it, it's not a weed. Angela, I'm not ready <laughs> for that level. <laughs> You're going to make me emotional. So we're going to move on. That was beautiful. Number two, what's an irrational fear of yours? <laughs> That's easy and hilarious. So fish. I have an irrational fear of fish, even in swimming pools, which it proves that it's totally irrational because there are no fish in swimming pools. In any <laughs> kind of water where I am dangling, I feel hunted. And <laughs> I know it's totally crazy. I'm brave and I love water. I grew up in Huntington Beach, California. I grew up around surfers. I grew up at the beach. I love the water. My husband and I went to Hawaii and we went snorkeling because I will always try something once. And then I have this moment of total irrational fear and it's over. So we went snorkeling. We rented the gear, snorkeled out over this reef, went to this reef. He wanted to go over. There was no way. There's big, nasty, scary things over there. So I was like, I'm good right here. I'll stay here. You go, you go do the big, wide open ocean. He left. I turned. If you've been snorkeling, you know, your mask kind of bubbles up and fogs up when you move too fast. So I turn and all I see is this shadow of something about 18 inches from my face. I screamed so loud that no joke, I saw the lifeguard react on the beach because there was a turtle about two feet from me. <laughs> proof and then my husband came of course like swimming as fast as he could he thought I got like stung by an eel or something and I made him swim back to shore holding my hand so here we are like holding arms limping along sinking in the middle because you can't swim with one <laughs> back to the shore and we didn't snorkel again that trip so yeah total irrational fear and yeah fish my favorite part about that is not only the fish but that the fish are somehow hunting yeah. you that's my favorite part of that. <laughs> You're like that. I'm being hunted. Yep. Like they want they, you. They want to eat my toes. Amazing. Or my whole self. I don't know. Yeah. They want to nibble. They nibble. <laughs> All right. Number three. I said earlier that I live by the mantra of leaving everything better than I find it. And what came to mind when you asked me this question was <laughs> this strange habit I have of organizing things. If I go shopping at places like TJ Maxx and, and Marshalls, like I will literally avoid the candle aisle because if I go down it, I'm going to have to put all the red candles together or all the Yankee candles together. <laughs> and I'm not sure that anybody knows, like the other shoppers definitely benefit from the order that I leave behind. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure the workers are like, what the heck happened to the candle aisle? No, I'm sure they actually appreciate it because I worked in retail like so many people did all through high school and college. And anytime that customer came in that would just tidy stuff up. I'm like, thank you. Thank you for that. Because now I don't have to. So you're actually, you're a superhero walking around cleaning up stores as a customer. I love it. We touched on this a little bit, seemingly by accident, number four. At the end of the day, you know, I, I remember that not only the people like Nana who definitely are with me every day in heart, but the people I'm working with every day, right? I mean, the fact that I can make something better for somebody really is, is sort of my driver. That's beautiful. And number five, if you could teach someone only one life skill, what would it be? Swimming. I'm kidding. 
I don't get eaten by the fish. fish. Exactly. <laughs> Empathy. I think it's not a tactical hard skill necessarily. It's one of those things, soft skills that we call them. But I think it's absolutely a vital life skill that we can put ourselves in a place of understanding what other people are dealing with. Good, bad, or indifferent. It doesn't like have we- to be a negative thing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We could spend an entire episode talking about how do you not only teach somebody how to recognize their own empathy, but what to do with it. A really good answer. It's been an incredible 45 minutes talking to you. And I feel like I could continue to go on and other people are going to want to. So how do people find you, connect to you, learn more about your company? Where do we go to find you? Yeah. LinkedIn is the easiest way. I'm on it all the time. So if you find me on LinkedIn, just connect or follow I am on Twitter. My handle's a little hard to say. It was created more than a decade ago, but it's Jaiho, with, which means be victorious. So J underscore AI underscore HO, which is super weird. I think I was pressured into creating it before I was really into social media, to be honest. <laughs> but now it's mine, so well, I own it. The very first email address that I ever made was you're on in five. I grew up in the theater scene, but it's the wrong your. Like I didn't realize it then it's Y-O-U-R-O-N instead of Y-O-U-R-E. So when I realized that, then it's like, you know, once you get an email, you're so deep into that email. I was like, I got 20 years on this email. I can't, you know, so now every time I give it to somebody, I'm like, I realize it's the wrong your and they're like, oh, I didn't even notice. I was like, you did and you judged me. But now you know that I told you and it's fine. So we do weird stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for being such an incredible guest on Taking the Lead. It has been a pleasure to hear about you and your life and how you're using it to make other people's lives much better. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. All right. We'll see you all next time. This episode was brought to you by Sales Assembly. For more information about membership or our free 60-day trial, visit us at salesassembly.com. And if you like what you just heard, please subscribe to Taking the Lead on Apple or wherever you listen to podcasts. And please leave us a review. It really helps people find the show. Thanks for listening.